Okay, um, so this is the third, um, intended as the grand climax of the series. Uh, I guess if we don't finish, we could always go on next week. The, um, what I argued in the first week was that uh, in the context of participating in American ethical discourse, we can't, oh well, we can't, we can't uh, have halakhic outcomes that um, distinguish between Jews and non-Jews, and happily, there is a very strong argument to say exactly the same in the context of halakha, that there really should be no difference between Jews and non-Jews on ethical issues. Uh, in the second week, I tried to show that many of the distinctions that are common in American discourse and often made in uh, halakhic discourse really have very little foundation. Um, that, they're, right, that they show up for the first time in the context of abortion in the 17th century, and they show up with the comment uh, that's included in today's source sheet again, that using them to solve abortion questions would be a svarat hakeres, would be a gut feeling, um, and no more. So I wanted to try to address tonight, this is a, a, harder, a harder enterprise, and so it may not be successful, uh, to talk about what uh, the context of making halachic choices in, a, right, in this setting, where you have, you have as a given that you have many halachic options. Uh, it's a given that you have, uh, right, you have options that, uh, and even within the framework that assumes that there's no difference between Jews and non-Jews, you have people who assume that um, abortion at every stage is some der derivative of homicide for both Jews and non-Jews from um, some very early point in the process. Uh, and then you have positions that assume that until the very end of the process, until you know, possibly as late as the time that the fetus enters the birth uh, enters the birth canal, there is no biblical prohibition. Um, so the question then is like, so what what would what does it mean to make halachic decisions in that context, and then what does it mean to make halachic decisions in the context of considering what where, what we want civil law outcomes to be. And I think that's right. Those are the um, and that involves. Um, like, so the first question, right, really up front, is do we think that it makes sense to make halachic decisions for people in that context? Right? Is, it, is it reasonable to argue that um, we're telling you what to do when the world, right, and, and let alone that we're trying to create a framework for American policy when we know that many, many options exist? So what I want to try to do tonight is take you through a possible framework for thinking about that, uh, and I'm maybe upfront for myself, you know, that just so you know, that we should, uh, the transparency. I hated Roe v. Wade. <laughs> uh, I hated it as a constitutional scholar, not as a, um, not as a halachist. Um, and my dislike of Roe v. Wade long preceded my uh, interest in halacha as a, seri as a serious matter. Um, I was interested in constitutional law really before I was interested in halacha. Um, and, you know, and it just, it just offended me intellectually, and my ambition when I was very young was to be the, this is a long, long time ago, was to be the conservative justice who would rewrite the Warren Court decisions in a way that made legal sense. Uh, because I couldn't follow the reasoning. I love the outcomes, but I couldn't, I couldn't follow the reasoning. And to that extent, I think that, um, you know, frankly, that I have been kind of the, for the last you know, several months, I've been kind of the car that the dog that finally caught the car. Uh, and try to go, you know, but what, what do I think should happen instead? Right, that was uh, right. I hadn't. I think that has been exacerbated by the um, what I think 
and this this is just me speaking as an American, you know, who thinks about politics, that it probably was a very serious error to allow laws to be on the books that were intent that were not intended to be enforced. So it does very dangerous things if you create laws that are not, you're not accountable to anybody that come into that come into being because somebody else removes something. Um, right, what we would call in halacha munea munea. Right, you remove you remove an obstacle which might be mutar on Shabbat, uh, as opposed to a direct action. Um, and so there is, you know, just all sorts of things that might uh, might over time be um, be realized as ridiculous. Or more more plainly, many laws. You know, and obviously there are many laws that um, are having pernicious effects because of what may or may not be under misunderstandings. Um, right, which which both sides have an interest in promoting. Right, one side has an interest in promoting. Uh, well, actually, you know, one side thinks that it will that it may perhaps will diminish the number of abortions and they get a victory that way. One side makes the laws look as terrible as bad as possible, and so they win that way because there's a backlash. Uh, right, so you find endless articles about how people are afraid that the law might mean. And right, and you know that's like that should not happen. You shouldn't have a right a law go into go into place on issues like this, which would threaten lives. Where somebody says, "Well, I'm not sure. I might get prosecuted if I save that person's life," and that's not the intent of the law. Um, so you know, but that doesn't, um, you know, that in a in a sense, that is the responsibility of everyone who considered advocating for you know for the for the um, for the uh, overturning of Roe v. Wade should have thought about that. Um, you know, should have thought should have thought about that. You know, and I guess. Um, yeah, and didn't didn't sufficiently. You know, John Roberts perhaps did, but um, but other people other people didn't sufficiently. So I'm. Yeah, I don't I don't think uh, I don't think I'm going to change my position. I mean, you know that that um, that Roe v. Wade was not uh, intellectually defensible as a matter of constitutional law. Although I might, but I, you know I haven't, I haven't. I think there are much better arguments, equal protection arguments, that might work, but that haven't been made haven't been made well enough. How about Griswold? I don't, I, don't, I don't think that that Griswold, right? But that's the whole question about how, you're gonna do, how you deal with, with the rights of privacy and how you deal with unenumerated rights, bichlal, right? Unenumerated rights exist, right? So it can't be everything that comes, right? Again, now you're, gonna, you're testing me as a constitutional scholar, which, you know, I was as a teenager. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's hard for me to, I just, tell, I just try to tell you where I am, you know, where, where I'm coming from in, um, in, that, in that regard. Um, I do. You know, I had a conversation. You know, my wife has been sending me all sorts of podcasts, which have been highly, you know, which have been you know, push polls, <laughs> and uh, but you know, but, but push me in, in useful ways. Uh, but one of the things that you know, we just talked about today is to what extent um, what we're moving towards, which I'm not sure I would be happy about, is a claim that there's a constitutional right to, to medical treatment at the um, at whatever on whatever grounds you know, with using the ethics of the medical profession. Which puts, to my mind, the medical you know, the medical profession above certain above legal critique, and I don't think that should be valid either. I don't know that it's specific. It's not a privacy-based critique. The the fact that women are suffering or possibly even dying is not a privacy-based critique. It's a doctor-patient-based uh, critique, and we should think about the extent to which we want to insulate the medical profession from that kind of critique. Um, you can think about you know you can always think about other kinds of extreme issues. You can talk about uh, my favorite uh, playing is Dr. Robert Truog. Um, at the, who heads the uh, Harvard Center for, ne- for ne- um, Pediatric Neurology, um, who in the context of brain death always loved using his, his amazing experiment where he took um, hypoencephalic um, children, right, children born without, without higher brains, 
and he stopped their hearts chemically long enough for them to be declared dead because there had been long enough without a spontaneous heartbeat. And then he restarted their heartbeats. Um, and, you know, and then he took their organs out and said, well, you know, you can't prosecute me for murder the first time because after all, they were dead. I declared them dead. You can't prosecute me for murder. <laughs> uh, right, you know, that's like, they're, I, whether you think he's right or wrong, there should, right, there's got to be some way legally to... Uh, to sustain the critique in some way of, of the medical profession, I think. Um, so I don't know that argument's going to convince me either. Okay, that's just background, so you should know where, you know where I'm coming from, where I am, right? I'm trying to figure out as, as a halachist who has, you know, for whatever residual constitutional opinions, um, what I would think we should be doing as a community. In the first year, I argued that we should be concerned about um, just in terms of halakha, in ter about constitutional interpretation, because we believe in consent of the governed as a um, as a fundamental category uh, of, of political legitimacy, and that we should be concerned about equal protection because we think of that as a fundamental category of law. Um, but I'm going to try to avoid any, those arguments I think are sufficiently politicized and I have nothing to, uh, you know, I think that they should, they should be your values, but they depend on your theory of constitutional interpretation and on your, uh, on your theory of equal protection. I don't have anything specific to contribute to the about that. Okay, so I started by, uh, with a quote from one of my uh, favorite books which may be obsolete or may have been, or may have been um, excessively optimistic in the first place in part of what it says. Um, so I'm going to point out that, that, um, that part because I think it is slightly relevant, but mostly focus on one other thing he says. All right, so this is a book by an Orthodox Jew, uh, a very learned Orthodox Jew, uh, who, was a, um, who was the practicing um, ethicist for a Canadian hospital. Um, not the ethicist for, not the Orthodox chaplain, but the hospital ethicist. And so his task was to bring himself authentically to conversations which did not presume the truth of Orthodox Judaism for a constituency, right? Most forget, doesn't assume the truth of constituencies, most of whom anything that was particularly Orthodox or Jewish was irrelevant. And so he's trying to write a book of, right, and he draws a distinction I think has to be done very often between uh, medical halakha and medical ethics. And he's trying to write a book of medical, medical ethics as a halachic Jew. And he makes the following claim. He says, in this work, I have chosen to select Jewish legal sources whose appeal is to reason, and which may be, for that reason, of more than parochial interest. Right? If, we, if we write, uh, if we pick the sources, right, the arguments we make are internal to the halachic system, right? We think this is what scripture means. Oh, look, look, there's Xerah Shavah here. All of you, of course, realize that. Scripture uses the same word in two different places. It means to transfer. Right? It, means, it means to transfer the laws. Right? And that, of course, will convince everyone in American society. Right? Okay, right? So he said, given a choice, he'll take the sources that make their arguments on grounds that are universally available. Um, and then he says, right, so he chooses to focus on Mitzvot and Adam Lechavero as opposed to Mitzvot and Adam Lechavero because he thinks... Um, uh, he thinks that um, that's a way to bridge at least the divisions among, uh, among Jews. So that's parenthetically, I tried that out in a different group today, and, the, and it's interesting because my, my students here thought that might still be true, that um, interpersonal mitzvot are more a way of bringing Jews together than ritual mitzvot, um, but my friends online thought very much not, that actually we may be more divided by interpersonal mitzvot. If you think about their larger scale version of politics, and there are smaller scale things as dealing with issues like gender and sexuality, uh, that actually interpersonal misvote may be a greater, causes a greater division among Jews than previously. Okay, nonetheless, we're gonna try appeal to reason. And he says, I've also chosen to interpret those sources 
or more commonly to adopt traditional interpretation of those sources in ways that speak most convincingly to the moral experience of patients and doctors, Jewish and Gentile alike, as I have witnessed this in hospital work. So that's a really uh, a much stronger claim. Right? We're not just picking sources that appeal to reason. We're picking sources that appeal to the moral experience of human beings in a particular culture. Uh, so that's, that's, like, that's a much more you know, interesting notion. Like, what is the moral experience of, uh, of hospitals and doctors? Um, in some ways, you know, for doctors, often, uh, Dr. Trump can say more about this than I can, right? But often, you, you, often certain positions that exist in halakha, theoretically and might show up in books, are simply unreasonable for doctors. In practice, you would be completely out of the profession if you followed those positions. One of them is distinguishing non-Jews and non-Jews, obviously. Um, but there are other, other ways in which you do it sometimes. Um, but the, you know, this I know, you know from the doctors I talk to on these issues that, um, that there, is, you know, there is a shared experience uh, in the medical profession often. And then the experience of patients is what people expect in, of the medical profession. So that's a really interesting notion and also has to be put in tension with the idea I said before about you can't leave any specific profession um, you know, Im immune to external, uh, to external critique. So Dr. Friedman argues that what he's trying to do in this book is to present an authentic halachic Judaism that is filtered by A, it makes arguments that appeal universally, and B, it reaches conclusions that are compatible with the moral experience of the society he's speaking to. And he's fully aware that that's, a, um, right, that that's not usually the way you think about halakha. Right? Usually we think about halakha as engaged as an autonomous endeavor within the Orthodox community that uses, it uses sources that speak, to, that speak to us and that resonate with our own experience um, and that and tend to resist you know, external, uh, external influence. Right. He says, you know, even any kind of explicit choice of methodology may seem, from the viewpoint of traditional Judaism, more con you know, controversial and even dangerous. But there is, um, right? But there's so many interpretations, as we've said, that you have to make choices in some way. And he simply chose an approach that is of broader rational appeal, which is a perfectly reasonable decision procedure. But not, you know, but in a normal halachic enterprise, normal in quotes, you would pick the one that has most authority. Uh, right, the one that you find most convincing in the texts, or the one that you find it, right, it, it's supported by more authority. So the question is, you know, is, there, is there legitimacy, what sort of legitimacy, and what sort of context in saying that I'm, I'm not going to do anything that betrays my halakhic integrity, I'm not going to make claim that texts don't mean what I think they mean, but given a choice among positions and interpretations, I'm going to pick the ones that satisfy those two criteria. Right? They have rational appeal, as opposed to inner, uh, inner religious appeal, and they relate to a broader moral experience than that of the Orthodox community. So right, I think it should, be, um, it should be evident that what I'm saying is that um, to be an Orthodox Jew participating fully in the American political community is roughly the same as being a clinical ethicist in a secular hospital. Uh, you can either, right, if, you, if you intend to be doing more than fighting for your own interests, uh, then that's the, right, that's the language you have to use. Um, so the question is, right, you know, what, you know, there's, there's a risk of losing yourself 
um, there's a right, there's a risk that you know that you end up that you end up you know, distorting your own system out of place. There's a challenge in you know what happens. What happens if you're both a medical ethicist in a hospital and a post in an orthodox community? Can you, uh, can you reach a, come to a moment of cognitive dissonance where you say, look, this is halacha here and that's the halacha there? Um, right? That's a, so Dr. Friedman has an example that, um, that takes away the moral issue about it, which, but which is useful perhaps to think about. Which he, calls, he talks about physicalism, uh, which is like, what happens if you reach halachic decisions based on actual cases in the Talmudic past, um, but you think that the cases in the, the cases in the halachic past are based on, um, are based on, phys- on you know, beliefs about medicine that you no longer think are true. So it might be in the context of halacha that you would make the argument. An example is uh, Rav Moshe Feinstein to, uh, allows donating blood because there, right, because there is a Gemara that endorses bleeding as a medical procedure. And so therefore, even though normally Normally, um, you know, drawing blood is a violation of the biblical prohibition against wounding, but it's permitted for therapeutic purposes, and the Talmud says that bleeding is therapeutic. Uh, but you shouldn't donate blood on particular days of the week, which are astrologically contraindicated. Right? So that, right? So that, that astrologically contraindicated, right? Because, it, right? So you can laugh, right? But it's it, right? That's you know, it's in there in the Gemara, and Rav Feinstein uses it and reaches a conclusion that we all endorse. It's really good that Ramosha Feinstein, right? I think we'd all say it's really good that Ramosha Feinstein found a way to endorse blood donations, uh, which, he, you know, through perfectly standard halachic reasoning. But if you brought that argument into, you know, what, you know somebody asks you, what's the Jewish view on blood donations in a, right, in a secular setting? Well, the Jewish view on blood donations is that it's okay because we think bleeding is, is, is medicinal. Uh, right? That's not going to work. Right? That's, that's not a, in the current universe, that is, in the current universe, that is not an approach or broad rational appeal. Uh, even if leeches are back, which apparently they are in certain narrow, <laughs> certain narrow contexts. Um, okay, so I wanted to right, so I wanted to put that out. Um, wanted to put that out as a uh, as a starter, and then right, let's try and look at um, what sort of arguments do we have that are of broad rational appeal on the issue of abortion. That you know that right, what does it mean to relate to moral experience? That's a hard one on a, in a society where moral experience is so split, right? where people, right, people don't recognize each other's, each other's moral experience. So that may, that may not be a useful criterion at all. And it may be that the, whole, the enterprise is hopeless. There's nothing you can contribute uh, as an Orthodox Jew to a society that's split, and all you can do is, all you can do is um, retreat to your own boundaries and only talk about the things that are interesting to you, because what are you going to contribute? Right, you're right. You can't. Um, right, all you, what you're contributing is trimming. Right, you're not right in, in the context of an ethical discussion. So, Dr. Friedman believes that he can bring in things that will appeal to everyone and therefore create a common ground for discussion. But in the context of abortion, there is no common ground anymore, and it's unlikely that. You know, and so, you, what you end, end up doing is cherry picking, um, right, which is how you can have you know, you know, two, group, two, two different Jewish groups and even Orthodox Jewish groups issuing. Diametrically opposed statements about the Jewish view on abortion. Um, okay, so I wanted to, you know, let's see, like, what the conversation looks like in the traditions. So I started with a tshuva of uh, Rav Moshe Feinstein. Um, this is this is a tshuva we should be aware of that is uh, intended as a um, as a public statement. It's not actually a response to an individual. This is one of the questions that was asked by his son-in-law, Rav Moshe Tendler, Zichron of Racha. 
And when Rav Tandler asked these questions, right, they were intended for publication. Often they were intended for, you know, for immediate publication in some kind of broadside. Um, and I'm pretty sure that this is one of those shivot that Rav Tandler asked because he intended to put out a statement in the name of Orthodox Judaism uh, shortly thereafter. So here's what Rav Moshe says, right? The purpose of this shivot is to clarify right, that killing a fetus is forbidden as ritzicha, whether for Gentiles or for Jews. Okay, right, so this is the... Um, Right, this is this is the the the, the, the extreme that way. Rav Moshe uses the language Ritzicha advisedly. He doesn't even want to say that Shvichut Damim is a lesser version of Ritzicha. Right? I've suggested in other contexts that Ritzicha is murder and um, and Shvichut Damim is manslaughter. Right? Rav Moshe wants to make it very clear that he considers it murder, and it's murder for both Jews and for uh, for both Jews and Gentiles. Um, right, right, and, but he tells you, right, you know, this is, you'll see what the, com- you have to figure out what the conversation is really about. Do not be misled by the language of Tosfut Nida 44a, who wrote twice, it is permitted to kill it. Right, Tosfut Nida 44a says, Mutar lahargo, talking about a fetus. Yeah. Then Moshe says, don't be misled. It's probably talk- talking about the case of the execution, where you, right, where you cause the abortion before the execution. Um, but I have to look it up to, to be sure. Um, so right, right, because it's obvious and clear that this is a typo. And when he says permitted, what he really means is exempt from capital punishment. And that's only for a technical reason. Okay. Um, then he says, there's, right, there's a contradiction in the Shavuot of the Maharik. This is, sorry, so then he, said, then he says, this is a really important claim. He says, even without this, if it were permitted to kill it, how would it be possible to violate Shabbat to save it? Is Chilul Shabbat a matter of human choice? So that if one wishes, one cannot save it or even kill it actively, and if one wants to sustain it, one would be permitted even to violate Shabbat? There is nothing like this ever, as all Chilul Shabbat that is permitted to save a nefesh is obligatory, not permitted. So this is a really interesting argument which becomes central um, to, I think, the tradition, which is there is a fairly strong but not absolute consensus that you can violate Shabbat to, uh, to, um, to save a pregnancy. And most people un- right, un- explain that as literally you can, you can violate Shabbat to save the pregnancy and not that we create a, you know, a legal... Uh, a legal move where we say that all, all, all endings of pregnancies are dangerous to women and therefore in all such cases we're actually acting to save the, right, to save the mother. We're generally acting to save the pregnancy. So Rav Moshe says, as it will see the Chavot Yair said before him, it's not possible to say that there's something you would, uh, something that you would violate Shabbat to save. Why, why would you violate Shabbat to save it unless it were a human life? So, all right, so it's not possible to say there's something you would violate, you would violate Shabbat to save that you can kill. It doesn't make sense to say that you can, right, to say that, you're, that, right, that it's just a choice. You can either violate Shabbat or kill it actively. So that's right. So that, that, that I think is a, um, is, I think it's an argument that one has to think about, right? One has to, one has to, think, about, uh, one has to think about very seriously. Is that really something you have to choose? Right. If you, right, in any circumstance where you think abortion is permitted for reasons less than saving a human life, do you therefore, right, do you therefore have to say, and then it should not be permitted to violate the Shabbat for that? Um, the question is whether that argument, right, that ground, 
is translatable into something, into, into something that is based on reason. Because Shabbat per se is not an argument, right? It's not an argument of a right of rational appeal. But the underlying question, which is whether there are, right, whether one can construct a compelling um, you know, sort of quantum notion of the fetus, where it's, you know, where, where sometimes, it's a, sometimes it's a particle and sometimes it's a wave, right? Sometimes it's a life and, sometime, and sometimes it's not, uh, right? That's, the, that's a challenge that is, that is um, faced universally. So one way of contributing to the discourse is if, right, if one believes there is an answer to that question, if your intuition is, yes, I, I understand how both of those could be true, um, right, then you might have something to contribute to the conversation. Um, Moshe goes on, right, now there's two, there are two chuvot of the Maharik, Rav Moshe understands, uh, this is Maharik Cologne, the 16th century, uh, Rav Moshe understands um, them as contradictory, that's not our issue now whether there are other resolutions, then he says, and so therefore Rav Moshe decides that one of them, the lenient one, is a forgery. All right, so far we have a typo and a forgery. Um, and he says, if that's correct, it seems to me that what the Gaon Rav Iwai um, Untermin uh, who was the chief rabbi of Eretz Israel in uh, uh, the Ashkenazi chief rabbi of, of Israel in the 60s. And he's a figure whose article, well, we'll see his article has enormous impact on, uh, on, on the internal halachic world. Um, it must, it, this must be referring to before 40 days. And what it means is the law is more strict for Jews than for Noahides before 40 days. That before 40 days, it's, right, abortion is permitted for, um, for Gentiles, but forbidden for Jews. Uh, which is an interesting, um, an interesting claim in its own right. I think that there's an easy basis for it, which is if you think at any stage that abortion is only rabbinic prohibition, so generally rabbinic prohibition don't apply to Gentiles. So it's easy to right, so it's easy to it's easy to get to that result. And then the question is, okay, what do we think? Right, what do we think halachically? Uh, what, what do we think we should argue legally in cases like that where something is forbidden to Jews but not for um, but not for Gentiles? Okay. All right, then he says, right, as, as for what Srida Esh wrote, Srida Esh is the 20th century figure of Yechiel Yaakov Weinberg, who we'll meet again shortly, wrote that according to Ramban, to Nida, it should be Nida 44b, it turns out that there is no biblical prohibition to violate the fetus, and none, nonetheless one may violate Shabbat, Shabbat to save it. Again, Shavot Yair, who wrote that this is a svara that has no shachar, right? It, 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 it's a stillborn um, svara. Um, that is, and which is something, he uses the phrase, Shiloni Tan Lehameer Klal, that cannot be used at all, as I have explained, right? So Rav Moshe frames this, um, I think, very clearly around, right, around an intuition. Right, right, it has all the contrary evidence, he rejects his typos. Uh, right, even, figure, even great figures who stand against him, he says, are, right, he says their, conversa- their, their things, what they say cannot be said at all. And the fundamental, the fundamental issue for Rav Moshe is, I know, I think it's inarguable that you can violate Shabbat to save a fetus. There's no way you could ever convince me that you can violate Shabbat to save a fetus, and yet it's not, it's not biblically prohibited to kill it as human life, because what else can you violate Shabbat for? So that's what I think. You know, so I think if one is trying to figure out like where, the, uh, where, where, the, right, where Orthodox Jews have something to contribute to the conversation, so whether you share with Moshe's intuition or not is a very powerful thing. And if you, right, if you, if you share his intuition, so then that tells you something. Um, and if you don't share his intuition, then you have, you have a lot of work to do. 
uh, right? Explaining, right? Explaining, right? Explaining how you can end up in this with this radiaceous compromise. Okay, um, right. So we already showed you, right? This is page three. Already showed you the um, the Chabot Yair who right, who lists the. Um, uh, just rem- remind you again that the Chabot Yair I don't think is a live question. I think that it's it's a literary device, um, and in the course of his literary device, he tells you his position that all the distinctions between trimesters and viability and all those sorts of things he thinks are um, are uncompelling importations of halachic standards from elsewhere into the case of abortion. And they're really just as far as But then he says something, then, he, then he, he adds one sentence which is what matters to me right now. He says, the last paragraph here, he says, if this is so, then according to what I have written, the case you asked about would be completely permitted under Torah law. Right? He's made an argument, he uses the same, the same tosfot that Rav Moshe rejects as a typo. And, um, and he says, okay, so it sounds like in the case he's speaking about, which is a fairly early abortion um, for, a, right, for, a woman, for a woman who committed adultery, um, but, you know, but she already knows she's pregnant, at least that much. We don't know, we don't know how, how late it is, but he's rejected all the, the distinctions anyway. It, so it sounds like, you know, at this point, it should be completely permitted and that he really believes that abortion is at most rabbinically prohibited up until the moment of, at least the moment where labor starts. Were it not, for the universal custom among us and them to ban abortion as offense against the breaches of licentious women and those who stray after them. Right. So he argues that you know, that abortion is, you know, that there's no halachic objection to abortion, but there is at, at that stage, but there is a social policy reason. And the social policy reason is one that didn't seem to meet great favor in this community based on the initial reaction to my deciding it. The social policy reason is that if you, if you allow random abortions, so then, right, you know, that, that the, the risk of having children who are mamzerim, um, right, or of pregnancy generally, is a control on promiscuity. Um, and if we allow abortion as a form of birth control, right, that would be right, right, right then we lose that control in society. And the counter argument is, in a society which already has effective birth control, this is um, really, it's, this is not an effective deterrent. And so maybe, maybe that's not good policy, right? Maybe, you know, you're, whenever, you, whenever you engage in a policy, there are costs to this policy, um, costs to the health of women, right? Other costs to society. So it might be, we could say, look, that's a traditional halakhic argument, which, and we don't think that it, um, we, but we don't, we, you know, and it, we don't think that that argument is, or we think, might think that argument is compelling. You might think that this is a society in which, um, in which you just feel a need to draw lines. Um, and at some point, you know, that every step somehow just feels like a, feels like a surrender to a society which no longer, you know, aban- which, which has abandoned conventional morality. Again, I'm not telling you which position, you know, which position I endorse or not. I'm just like, like how, how you would use these sources to make arguments. Right. What, you know, the source does say that there's a right that um, there is a rabbinic source which argues that uh, that there is room to create a general presumption against abortion for social policy reasons, being presumably fully aware of what the costs of that are. So you could make such an argument if you um, you can make such an argument if you wanted. Okay, um, page four and five is the three day H. Um, the three day H is a um, was Rabbi Yaakov Weinberg. He was one of the great figures of the 
early to mid 20th century. He was the last rector of Hildesheimer's Seminary in Berlin, um, right when that was closed by the Nazis. So he fled to Montreux in, in uh, Switzerland. Um, an interesting figure. Um, Professor Mark Shapiro has a biography of him that is certainly worth reading. A uh, figure that I'm always um, a little bit ambivalent about uh, which, because you know, he was a great figure who just, you know, who kept on getting dragged into controversies, but, but always had to be dragged into them. So, you know, there, there's always a certain amount of hesitancy uh, in, his, in his public statements. Um, so here's, right, you'll see, you'll see that kind of, um, I should say that, you know, that I told Dr. Shapiro that I, that I was not, I was nervous about him after reading the biography, and Dr. Shapiro sent me his, sent me his, the edition he had edited of, um, of Rabbi Weinberg's um, other other articles and letters, and I think that that convinced me that this was a really great figure. Um, but I'm still not sure how I really came as a postic on big public issues, because you have to really you have to triangulate a lot. So here's what he says: he says I wrote this is a pamphlet he's writing in, in the 50s, I believe. Uh, I wrote this pamphlet 15 years or more ago as a response to the question of Afrum, right? The word is charid, uh, right? Which I don't think is intended to mean charidi. Uh, Dr. Zekbach, in the name of the Kharid Doctors of London. Um, and now he says, but he, he's publishing this, um, but now that he's publishing this in his, in his response, in between writing the original pamphlet, he has seen that um, there, there are two issues of a, an Israeli periodical named Noam that are devoted to this, including the article by Rav Unterman that was mentioned earlier. And so he's telling you up front, you know, you'll have to, you have to compare what I wrote to that, and there's going to be a footnote at the end in which he's going to tell you how he was affected by that pamphlet, even though he's publishing exactly as he did previously. Well, he's only adding additions. He's not changing anything or retracting any of the arguments. So, so, woman, so the, case, the, the case that he was asked about was, uh, I believe that the correct translation of the German is uh, rubella, right, the red sickness, um, which, causes, right, which causes a very, very high rate of birth defects. And the question he's asked is, right, and apparently what he, as he's told, I can't tell you this is true or not, according, uh, according to British law, there is, uh, a, there is either a strong presumption or even a mandate of abortion if the mother has been diagnosed with rubella. Um, to the point that, and this is also something we're thinking about, right, England has explicitly nationalized medicine and therefore the, and, right, and doesn't have a conscience objection as far as he is told. I can't, again, I can't tell you this is true or not. But as the question is asked to Rabbi Weinberg, there's no conscience objection. And therefore, if an Orthodox Jew um, seeks not to perform an abortion, uh, they will be dismissed from their job. Um, okay, these are questions, you know, these are questions that I get on occasion about whether, uh, whether Orthodox Jews have to recuse themselves um, from, right, from, from certain kinds of, uh, of abortion cases. And there is a risk. That you know, if you're depending on the context, that if you recuse yourself too often, then you don't right, you don't have a job. Um, okay, so um, right, so the question is right, so the question is asking is right. According to English law, the doctors are obliged to abort, but in the opinion of the doctors asking the question, right, he will likely be fired because doctors are considered appointees of the state, and they have right, they don't have they don't have discretion. He doesn't have a conscience. Sorry to interrupt you. You got to give me ten minutes. Well, we don't have minion yet. Okay. Well, then we have ten minutes. Five minutes. <laughs> um, okay. Um, so the um, is that, oh, that clock slow? Is that what it is? Ah, my fault. No, it's fine. Okay, so we're fine. I don't think they call me. Okay. So the um, so right. So he says is that um, 
Right, so the question is, what, what, right, if, what are the doctors supposed to do? So he starts off by quoting Tosfut. Right, that's the uh, right. That's his first vision. Tosfut says, Tosfut says it's um, it's permitted. Then he quotes, uh, right, he quotes uh, an earlier figure by Don Plotsky, who tries to argue that in fact it's murder from you know from almost conception or from conception at all. Um, and he quotes the Yad Ramah, which we don't have time to go into in depth, which. Um, which Rabbi Plotsky understands as um, as plausibly as meaning something like that, and the Yisraelish says, "Hey, this cannot be said at all exactly the language of Moshe used." And then he claims, "And the Adrama must be a typo, uh, or the words must have come from somewhere." Um, right. So he says, ex- "Right, exactly the inverse, uh, exactly the inverse of Ramosha. Uh, but then he says, "You know what? Everything I've said so far to permit this." works according to what I believe is the majority of, of Poskim, but you should be aware that Rav Chaim Soloveitchik read, read there's a key text where everything changes. If you understand the key text about saving the life of the mother as being that you can read the famous text which says that if you have a mother, a woman having a difficult, difficult childbirth, then you can dismember the fetus as long as it's inside her, but you can't once the, once the head or most of the body emerges, and the language of the Mishnah is Beforehand, we say her life precedes it. Afterwards, you don't push aside one nefesh for another. So if you understand that a saying, so obviously it's not a nefesh until its head emerges, so then everything he says makes sense. Right? And actually, until then, it's not a nefesh, and so it's only rabbinic, and right, at most, and everything is great. But if you understand that text as meaning that, um, that, you can, that, you can, that the fetus changes status from being a from being a not pursuer to being a pursuer the moment, uh, right? That, sorry, pursuer to not pursuer the moment his head emerges, because it's, instead of being a pursuer of the mother, it's just trying to preserve his own life once it emerges. Then the text doesn't say a fetus isn't an effish, and the whole argument goes away. The whole argument goes away. And then he tells you in his footnote that um, after writing all this, he, uh, right, he, right, he thought you could rely on the position against Rabbi Soloveitchik, but then he saw Hunderman took a position every bit as strong as Rabbi Soloveitchik, and he gave up his position. Right, and so he, right now he thinks you have to ask. So it's really interesting. This is where you get Rabbi On the one hand, he seems to have a very strong intuition. On the other hand, his intuition, he tells you, right, because he's, you know, he, maybe it's just a textual intuition of the Adrama is a typo, but probably not. He's perfectly willing to say that there are things that you can violate, there are human, there are beings you can violate Shabbat for, even though it's not a biblical violation to kill them. Right? He thinks that's fine. But in the end he says, you know what, but, every, but everything depends on a text. And if you convince me that this text meant something else, then, um, right, then, I would have to, right, then I would have to give up my position. Because I wouldn't have a Jewish source saying that a fetus is not an effish. So that's the interesting thing, because his position at core, is not really an ethical position. Right? It's, a, it's a position that, right, it's a position that's based on a reading of a traditional text. Um, so actually, right, so it, it, has, it, has, it, has, it has less to say. Um, but what he, what he contributes is his intuition that there is a way to, that, right, that, the, that the paradox of Moshe raises about, about Chilol Shabbat is solvable. Um, even though I don't think he offers anywhere in the tshuva a, a roadmap for uh, a roadmap for resolving it. Um, okay, so since we seem to be hitting the um, hitting it, I, I, on the last page, I gave you um, something that I had published uh, earlier this year when it was when when it first uh, appeared that Roe was going to be over overridden, which means that I you know that it may be more me chasing the car than uh, <laughs> than um, than having caught it. 
but just give you a way, a set of questions that I think you can ask, uh, you can ask halakhically in terms of what should the contribution of, 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 uh, of orthodoxy be in political conversation. And I hope I showed you tonight, right, that there are ways in which um, they're not exactly the ways, right, this is not a sheer about what the halakha of abortion is. And a fair question to ask me after this is, okay, Rabbi Clapper, you showed us what Rav Moshe does, you showed us what Reish does, if somebody asks you a shayla, uh, what would you do? Right? That's a fair question to ask. I have been asked abortion shaylas. Um, but um, and I'll just tell you up front, and you know, we can consider maybe that, you know, if it's worth it. Um, I didn't schedule it, but we could schedule another shear on what, what is the, the immediate question that's, um, that most of the issues revolve around, which are Tay-Sachs and Down syndrome uh, cases. Um, so I'll just tell you my own experience, right? You know that that I that um, that it was very problematic for me, and um, I guess I want liberal street credit for Rabbi Shai Held, who was I was learning with at the time. Um, that when we discovered that the Tzitzilayezer, who was the position who followed the Tzitzilayezer, Ezer Waldenberg followed the Sridi Eish, uh, and he takes his position, and he takes his position to the point where he he allows Tesex, which everyone cheers. But he says the exact same grounds that lead him to allow Tay-Sachs also led him to allow uh, universal amniocentesis for women over 40 in the state of Israel on the presumption that, uh, that the vast majority of Down syndrome children would be aborted. Uh, and that was very hard. That was, uh, that was, very, that was very hard for both, uh, you know, that was, that was very hard, like, but I was willing to go that far. Um, and so when I got a question uh, about it, I, I worked very hard, and I give Roy Pollock of uh, Beitin credit for coming up with the idea, uh, where, the, where the next question I was asked, I found a way of considering it even worse than trisomy 13. Sorry, even worse than Tay-Sachs, it was trisomy 13, even worse than Tay-Sachs, halakhically, and so I didn't have to, I never had to address the Down syndrome question. Um, right, so I'm still, you know, I'm still probably where I was, you know, 25 years ago. It's like, wow, that's, uh, right, that's pretty wild that the same logic takes you there. Um, so we could go there at some other point, but I think now we actually are at Menchemarev. Thank you for listening, and by all means, ask questions afterwards or by email or things like that. I'm happy to continue the conversation. I think they probably started without us. But <laughs>